printed in your, in your English Bible as the last of Paul's epistles, the last one, but it's not because the last one he wrote was Second Timothy. So we're going in chronological order, which is not uh, printed Bible order, but I, I argue it is biblical order. If we have a children's class downstairs, we want to go ahead and release the, uh, the, the youth, the, um, the innocents to head down and study with Miss Emma. Titus chapter 3, the last chapter of an epistle is very much, uh, very often a victory lap. And it is in light of all that we've heard where the Apostle Paul is telling Titus to go to the Cretans, who are filthy beasts, liars, gluttons, and uh, square them away. We heard in chapter 2 the need for all, all walks of life, all phases of life, whether it's the elderly men or the elderly women or the young women or Titus with the young men, there's a certain way to live your life. And it is summarized this way. You've received the grace of God when you trusted in Christ as your savior. And that grace is beyond our comprehension that God has saved you. And because you have received this grace because of the new birth that began when you first began trusting in Christ, because of this new life, there is a life of work in the spirit's power that he's given us to live. We were saved, in other words, for a purpose. And it's these works that God prepared for us. So Paul's really going to emphasize in chapter three, as he closes this letter, the need for the believers to live out their salvation with these works. Let me get some context. In verse 11 of chapter two, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I believe it is the grace of God the saving grace of God has appeared to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you hear it? Because you've received the grace of God, there's a way he wants you to live. It's not, I'm going to live a certain way so that I can earn God's grace. That's insane. That's, that's, that's not um, reflective of anything uh, biblical, but it is the pagan ideal. And this is the attitude looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The blessed hope, the appearing of Christ in the clouds to call us up to himself, to assemble the church for the first time in world history. The blessed hope when you and I have Christ come to appear for us. And who is this Christ in verse 14? He gave himself for us as a substitute for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Because he purified us for himself, we need to be zealous for good deeds. You see the sequence? It's always grace through faith, justification. It is the impartation of God's eternal life. It is the declaration of God's perfect righteousness to our account. It is all the things that God did when we first trusted in Christ. That as we grow and learn of these things, we come to be aware of our salvation and what it means. This constantly draws us to live our lives in a way that pleases God. And what pleases God 
is zealous for good deeds. The works that he wants to bring forth through us, as we'll hear Paul say in Titus 3, the fruit, the fruit to be unfruitful is to not uh, conduct yourself in these works. These things speak and exhort and reprove. With all authority, let no one disregard you, is how chapter 2 ends as we ended last, last uh, Sunday. And now we find ourselves in Titus 3, where uh, you have several things happening. And one of them is one of the greatest declarations of the free grace of God for the salvation of mankind in all of Scripture. One of the greatest declarations of the free grace of God. And it's a complicated, long sentence in Titus 3, chap- chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And I'll read Titus uh, 3, 1 through 8 here. And we won't probably get very far into the long sentence in verse 4, but remind them, these Cretans, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. Malign is a, verb, is a verbal thing. It's to speak against someone. The word is actually blasphemeo, and it means to, to speak against someone. So you don't use your mouth to tear someone else down. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, actually, words matter, and the words you say will hurt you. And so don't do this, Cretans. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, literally showing humility to all men. For we must also, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Maybe you noticed in Titus 3, 1 and 2, you have a couple of lists. A couple of lists. I love the lists in the Bible. What is a list? A list of qualities, of responsibilities, things that you want to be, things that you don't want to be. We have lists throughout Paul's letters, and this is a great one. Remind them, he says, of the following. To rulers, archais, and exousiais. To rulers and to authorities. Hupotasso and uh, patho, uh, patharcho, to patharcho, to submit, hupotasso, literally to place yourself under, meaning the authority of in this case. And patharcho is to obey. It's a very rare word used twice in the New Testament, and it means to obey. We have other words for obedience, but this one uh, starts with the concept of being convinced by the ruler. And ends up with, because of your conviction of the authority of the ruler, you submit to that authority. To rulers and authorities to submit, to obey. For every good work to be ready. Prospon, ergon. For every good work, agathon. Ergon, agathon is a good work, good of intrinsic value. It's, it's interesting how Paul switches between 
the beautiful works, kathos, and the agathos, the good of intrinsic value description of the works. From an observer's perspective, the good works are attractive. From God's knowledge of reality, the works that he's doing through you are good of his essential, righteous, glorious good. And it's both true. For every good work to be hetoimos, ready, prepared. Meaning, if there's a good work that's in front of you that you might participate in, you need to be ready for that. Primed. Is there work that I could do? That's the idea, be ready for it. To malign no one, this is what you also have to remind them, Titus, to malign no one, blaspheme, to speak against no one, to be peaceable, not embattled. Amakos is to be not at war in the classical use, and it means, therefore, peaceable, to be known as a non-warrior. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not in spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean that you're not fighting the good fight because we wouldn't have Paul contradict himself. It means that you're not spoiling for a fight. Gentle. Epia case. This word is very interesting because we think gentle means that we're, we're about to be stroked and it doesn't mean that. The, the lexicon of record says this word to be gentle. Know what it means? To not insist on every stricture of the written code. To be forgiving in advance and gracious, magnanimous, love covers a multitude of sins. That's the attitude. It's a gracious mental attitude toward people. Not looking for a reason to cut someone out because they, don't, they fall short. It doesn't mean we have lower standards. It means that we're gracious toward people. Showing all proud tastes, almost always translated humility, all humility toward all men. Notice the double universal. All humility toward all men. Now you've got now two portraits. You have two portraits. You have a list of virtues that we need to engage in and a list of vices that we used to be guilty of that we need to not be uh, part of. Um, I'm sorry, verse three. Well, I sk- wait a second. Verse three gives you the vice list. Verses one and two tell you the virtue list. So let's go through the virtue list. These are virtues of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. Virtues. And the first one, when he says to rulers and authorities to submit to obey, this is simply respect for authority. This is recognizing authority comes from God. When God delegates it down, it has a function. And so there is therefore the call on our lives throughout the New Testament and really the Old Testament to have respect for authority. And the gradual coup that is overtaking the governance of the United States. Where we are approaching the, uh, the, the incapacity of our government to function under its constitutional strictures. Arguably the rulers being those who set up the law for this country. As Thomas Jefferson argued, we who die should not be controlling the lives of generations in the future when he was arguing against the Constitution. Making the point, I think, and he's wrong, but making the point that for us, our Constitution is a governing authority. When we see the dissolution of this constitutional republic, it is going to always be very challenging for us to figure out who are the authorities and rulers. 
Let me give you an example. If the president derives his power from the Constitution of the United States, and I think most Americans that know anything about our, our history and our Constitution would say that's where it comes from, not from his military might where he could subdue us and say you have to get an F-16 if you want to take on the government, F-15 to fight the government. Understand what I'm saying. In this culture where we have um, a president or, or any governing official who gets his authority from the derived from the constitutional establishment that we all agreed to as the states when this country was con constituted. If he then is functioning contrary or outside of the purview of that constitution, we are in a great dilemma because now we are legitimately to ask, is this the governing authority? It's a problem. It's the problem of self-government. In Rome, under Nero, this wasn't a problem. In the United States, it is a moral problem. It's a dilemma for us. Does someone who is no longer functioning under the brief of his authority still have the authority? And if might makes right, if we're just a tin horn, the government has the machine guns and the police, so they are in control. If that's the way this is supposed to work, according to the scriptures, then yes, um, bend the knee to uh, tyranny. But again, you have a problem in this country that's unique in his history called self-government. So uh, I don't want to resolve that conflict for you today. I don't think we can. But those pastors that would say that the American war for independence was, was wrong because of Romans 13, I don't think, I, I don't agree with them about that because of the nature of government, of constitutional government in England in the time, because of the arguments made by the English parliamentarians who were against what the majority was doing with, uh, with the taxation. So what, is, what am I saying? I'm saying the general principle is that you have respect for authority. And to execute this principle, you and I need to figure out who the authority is. And we'll start with God. And we'll say, it's not me. And we'll say, it's not my desire to have a certain type of lifestyle. And then we'll start walking down how God has delegated authority. And we will submit to the rulers and to the authorities. The next uh, virtue for the new life you have in Christ is diligence. Being ready for every good work. Diligence means that you're ready. You are prepared. You are primed because you know that God has called you to a life of works. You have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is in you to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit of the Spirit is empowering you for the work that God wants you to do. So we're primed. I know believers that have a lot of theological knowledge. And so do you. Who will stumble over this verse and say, I'm really not sure. If, if we should be doing these good works. And because they keep trying to go back and say, I don't know if I'm really saved, really, because we're not saved by good works. We're saved by the work of Christ. And they're trying to say, well, it's grace through faith, not of works. And, and they don't understand that if you're saved, then you're his new creature in Christ created for good works. I had a friend say that recently in a message that, um, Christian sanctification, the spiritual life is not by works. That's a really interesting theological summary. 
Christian sanctification, the spiritual experience of the believer being set apart to God is not by your works. And what, what he means is you're not going to do a bunch of works that set you apart to God, that get you closer in your relationship with God. And I, I like that. I like that. Christian sanctification is for good works. It's not by good works. It's for good works. As you grow spiritually, you're being equipped and matured to do the work God wants you to do. And I think that without those works, Christian sanctification turns out to be impossible because here's what happens. God tells you what he wants. And you and I in our approaching maturity and theological deafness will say, I don't have to do these things that God said I have to do. And then we're just arrogant, immature, babies in Christ acting like unbelievers, not doing what God has called us to do. No, you're not sanctified by your works. You are sanctified for the works that God called you to. And if you deny him, you will be in rebellion against him. And I contend that uh, your sanctification must be attended by good works. Here's my illustration on this beloved for your diligence. You know what I'm going to say probably, but I hope you can, you can say it. You are growing up spiritually, but that's not an end in itself. Spiritual growth is the obvious next step after the new birth. Babies are born and then they grow. We're in a growth process and it's with fits and starts and we stumble and we, God picks us up and dusts us off and we grow some more and we stumble and he picks us up and we grow some more. All right. And we never change our standards because God doesn't change. We recognize where we fall short and then we re- reassert, reassent to what God has said for us and we move forward. But so what? To what end? Spiritual growth is not an end in itself. If you raise your children, if you, if you rear children in your home and feed them and water them, physically they'll grow. If you train them spiritually, if you train them in the word, if you train them and show them the love of God and their love for God, they'll grow spiritually. To what end? The idea of a kid growing up in your house and just being an adult, I'm here, I'm done. That's insane. That process of 18 or however many years is designed to be the start of a life of work. Right? What's that 18 year old going to do? Better, better be learned to work. Better learn to work. Better learn to be diligent whatever the work is, because we're industrious. And I believe if all of us, if we're not working, we're floundering. If we're not industrious workers, we're floundering. What is school for, for children? It's training them to to a life of work. It's where the joy of life is because you're made in God's image. He's the creator. And so he worked on six days. He rested the seventh. God tells Israel, you work six days, you rest on the seventh. Workers, it's, it's the joy of life. For every good work to be ready. He's talking about the works that God prepared before us to walk in. Be, be prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so this is your virtue, diligence to be ready for the good works God has for you. Please hear me. Please say it for me if someone ever says to you, your church preaches works, not faith, not grace. Please hear me. I'm only talking as 
Paul is talking to believers who are being equipped for the work. That's what Titus is. It's a letter to equip believers, a believer, for the work of the ministry. And we have it in the scriptures because it becomes a paradigm, a a pattern for us, all of us, in the way we're going to be used by God in our part of the work. We're not Titus, we're not taking over the churches in Crete, but we are going to make disciples in whatever capacity God is going to equip us to do it. And so I'm only talking to believers in Christ who have the life. If you don't have the life, forget the discussion of the good works. You don't have the capacity in God's power to do those works because it comes from God working in us. In other words, unbelievers need to receive by faith the work of Christ on their behalf for their sins. Believers, having received this work, are called to grow and to perform in those works that God has called us, has has equipped for us. And why? Because your dad loves you. Abba, Father, loves you. He has a project, and he wants you to join him in it. And there's no greater compliment I think God could pay us than say, I made you to work with me. I made you for this purpose, and it is all my grace. Third, to malign no one speaks of what you and I do with our mouths. Christian virtue, we read in James, is control of the tongue. And it's an indication of spiritual maturity. You read in your English Bible, perhaps, the word perfect, telios, complete. Complete in the sense of mature. The mature believer controls the tongue. And, that in, in, and the summary is maligning, is blaspheming or speaking against people. Now, Paul will speak against people who have wronged him in the text. So-and-so harmed me greatly. Alexander is one of the names that Paul calls out. And he's saying it to Timothy as a warning. Watch out for him. He's dangerous. And sometimes in the ministry of the gospel, we have to tell the truth in as limited a scale as possible to, to help people negotiate some landmines that are out there. The control of the tongue, not maligning anyone, is contrary to the Cretan approach, which in a baseline, sinful, godless, functionally atheist frame of life, these people like to run their mouths and, and the content of their sinful hearts comes out in their venom from their lips. And that is what he's talking about. He's talking about sinful speech toward people, gossiping, setting ourselves up as someone else's judge, Summarized here as, as trying to tear someone down, blasphemeos, te- tearing someone down with your tongue. Now let me talk about you victims of this. Everyone in this room has been spoken against in a wrong way. Has been not, I don't mean a brother came alongside you and said you're wrong to your face like Paul does to Peter publicly in Galatians 2. I mean you've been, someone sinfully had it out for you and they used their mouth to tear you down. We've all had it. That's why mom has told us when we were little kids, sticks and stones. Let's move beyond kindergarten advice and talk about what we do with this. When someone commits personal sins that affect your life, it hurts. 
You have been misused. You have been sinned against. And we have a word for being sinned against or misused in English. Use that is bad is abuse. Abuse. (gasps) Now we're in psychology and sociology. Now we're talking about human viewpoint. We're not. When someone sins against you, it causes an injury. It hurts. There is a feeling of betrayal and all of the possible things that you know go on in your heart when something hard happens to you. But I want you to understand that Paul is saying the the Corinthians, the, the Cretans need to be constantly reminded of this problem because they're sinners and they're not supposed to be expressing that sinfulness. And that's really the issue. When someone sins against you, you need to reckon, recognize the source. It is their sin and it is not yours. Now, they may be calling you out for something that is a legitimate problem and you could take a legitimate criticism and they may be doing it in a wrong way. And it's hard sometimes to sift through that. But here's what you do. Here's what you do. You go back to God who has no sin who has no shadow of sin, no wickedness in himself. And you say, it is God that I serve. It is his grace that has saved me from my sins. And the other person's sins are not an excuse for my reaction in sin. And it's a challenge and it's a rationale and it's a thought process. And I didn't say I feel like thinking this way. I said, it's a thought process. Their sins are theirs. My response is my responsibility I will not sin in reaction to their sin. But I didn't say you wouldn't hurt. But see, there's a difference between that hurts and feeling sorry for myself. There's a difference between saying that, did, that wounded me and I'm hurting from this and saying I'm a victim now of uh, uh, inordinately claiming victim status from they sinned against me. There's a big difference between hurting from someone hurting you and being arrogant and saying, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse three says, Jesus dealt with such hardship, such abuse toward himself at the hands of sinners. And he's your example. He did fine because he looked out and up at the joy that was set before him. So my challenge to you is, this is a really powerful one. It doesn't come up in the text as often as I'd like to probably talk about it. But we really need to be vigilant and diligent as believers about how we manage our mouths, how we encourage one another to do the same, and how we deal when someone doesn't manage this, when we have a Cretan outburst of blasphemeo, of malignant speech. Malign no one. And then in verse, uh, the fourth one is not causing conflict to be peaceable. When he says you need to be peaceable, remind them to be peaceable. It means that there is a natural contentiousness that arises from our old sin nature. It's old sin natural. And here's how I think it works. You could point to racism, which is, which is in every civilization, in every heart. There's a struggle with thinking I'm a good and the other that's different from me is a bad. We all struggle with an, an internal arrogance that says I'm better than I am. And then when you can see differences between people genetically, you can start making categories and grab that arrogant thought of it's me, it's good, and then impose that on groups. That's what it is. It's just sin. It's human sin. The solution to racism and to human sin is not a sociological project. 
It's not a poster that tells you that this culture is evil and it's founded on evil. All cultures are evil. It isn't saying, well, this culture is better or that culture is worse. The solution to sin, and it's sin, and it's only sin. The solution to sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled to God. This is an irrelevancy now. Your genetics, your culture. These are irrelevancies. You are, you, your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the solution. There is, all these other things are satanic counterfeits to the divine solution of the cross. Now, I'm spoiling for a fight about this. Because I think to deny the cross is to insist on these human satanic solutions. But I'm not supposed to be pugnacious. I'm not supposed to be looking for war. Not warlike. The Cretans are warlike because they're sinful. We become warlike. We become looking for contentiousness and causing problems where we don't need to have them. Today we call it drama. She has a problem with her or he's now got a problem with him. Why? Why, why are you doing this? Be peaceable. Amakos means not makos. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Not makos. Let's be not makos. Amakos is not warlike, not, not battle ready, not, not for battle. We're not fighting each other. In other words, preserving peace becomes a priority. Preserving the peace becomes a priority. Pastor, how can we preserve the peace in a context where there's constant rebellion against God and we're supposed to tell the truth and to tell the truth will be to be fought against? Right. You have to balance this in a war that you're in called the angelic conflict. In a war that you're in that's been raging since Genesis chapter 3 for us in the human race. In a war that we were born into that Paul says fight the good fight. In a war that you can't get away from, you need to be peaceable. As much as it depends on you. I'm not here to cause a problem. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not trying to spoil for a fight. Have you ever been around people that are peaceable to your face and then they're tearing you apart behind your back? Hurts. Well, this is what we're talking about. It destroys fellowship. It destroys churches. It destroys ministry. And Paul is insisting that Titus insists that the Cretans seek peace. The word gentle, I mentioned earlier. Gentle, F-E-A-K. I was just so, so fascinated when I first read this definition. Gentle in verse 2. Breaking protocol, I'm going to show you my lexicon real quick. Come in, lexicon. Joel, tap on the screen if there's a problem up there doing it this way. On your, your, your analog screen. Okay. EPA case, E-P-I-E-I-K-E-S. EPA case is the, is the noun here for gentle. Why, do you, why, why not just go with gentle, pastor? It says it in my English Bible. I mean, can't that be good enough? What does is, what is, uh, the New English translation of 1611 say? Um, to be no brawlers, but gentle, shewing all meekness unto men. Okay, so we're shewing. Epia case. Look at what the Bauer Donker dictionary, and I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying this is what the, the Greek scholars think this word means. Not insisting on every right of letter of law 
or custom. Now, I'm primed to really like that definition for this word gentleness. Not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Think about that. So what this does, see, I, what this means, if this is right, if this is what Paul means by this, that it's, it's gracious, it's magnanimous toward people. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's forgiveness in advance. That side of the Christian love ethic. If that's what this word means, and these, these scholars think so, that's what Thucydides said it, used it as. That's how Aristotle used it. And these are classical writers. But if that's what it's talking about, then that church, bullet, or that church clipboard committee person that's looking to see if you've got your lady, if your skirts are just the right length um, above the knee or below the knee, that the, the people that I know of a man whose, whose daughter was measured, her skirt was measured in church by the pastor's wife to show how out of tolerance it was because there was a modesty problem. Yes, culture has a modesty problem. Yes, the girls are pushing the envelope and they want to be seen. And then they want to say after they're seen and lusted after because they're not modest with their bodies, they want to say, oh, I'm being abused by these boys lusting after me. And they're, they're struggling against their sin nature. And then you have the sin natures of those around them. And it's obviously a sin problem from beginning to end. And I'm not excusing boys with their oogling and lust. I'm saying that there is a problem that is in both parties. And modesty is a big thing, but so is Epieke. So is this gentleness that you don't need to go measure her skirt in front of the other kids. You don't need to well, we said it's got to be this way and you, you don't have to be such a legalist that the person, especially the baby, does not know the love of God from you. There's a, you can measure a skirt and not break the honor code of loving the other person. There's a way to do it. And so a lot of this is how you do what you do. And so I, I like this definition. Um, it could also be, Gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant, tolerant is an idea, okay? Does this mean I'm going to put a flag out front that, that, that announces that uh, God is not going to flood the earth again? So do whatever you want, I guess, is the meaning of the pride thing. No, it doesn't mean that kind of tolerance. It means that we're forgiving of one another. It means that we're open-hearted toward one another. And if that's the sense that he means in gentleness, then... Uh, we just disarmed a lot of the silly criticism from the world of the Bible-believing church. The world says we're hypocrites and we're self-righteous and all. No, we're sinners and we're broken about our own sin, but we have eternal life and we know how to get it. That's our message. Gentle, gracious. I'm going to translate that word gracious and say that there is a way of being gentle toward people regarding their, their shortcomings. You know, I could go right away to places where the Bible teaches us to correct one another and say, but, you know, we need to temper this with the correction of one another. And you know what I've said about that before, I hope too. If you want to correct someone, it's probably, it's probably not your job to do it. If you want to be the one, oh good, I'm going to tell her today because I caught her. If you want to be the one, then you're probably not the one to do it. 
And that's hard for some people because of the way their sin nature is wired. They're, they're so good at not looking at their own fault failings. And they're so primed to see the other person's failings. And here's one thing that I think is going on in that self-righteousness tendency in our hearts is that we think that we don't think of it, but it's, it's how we are. If I'm focused on their failings that I don't have, then I don't have to look at my own. I, I, spare me, Lord. I'm busy helping them with their stuff. And that's the, that's the speck in the eye versus the telephone pole, the, the, the railroad tie sticking out of the other person's eye. The sixth virtue is not on screen, but I'll put it up there. Humble. Proutes. In other words, I disagree a lot with some of the English translation here in the New American Standard, but humble is proutes, and it says showing all humility toward all men. There's a double universal all humility toward all men. And so you could apply the concept of humbling yourself to the idea of showing consideration to the other. I got to the intersection first, but you go ahead. I yield, right? I'm on the right side. You're on the left side. I got there first. I double have right of way, but you look like you're in a hurry. Go ahead. That's the idea of, of, considering others instead of yourself showing all humility toward all men. I believe this is one of the great places where the Christian virtue of humility is emphasized. And it is the, it's the attitude of our savior, which doesn't say I'm nothing. Humility is not humiliation. It is not being pounded into the dirt to lie about who you are and what you are. It is simply telling the truth. I'm not as good as my sin nature says I am, but in Christ, because of what he's done, I'm better than my, my perspective, my perception can imagine because I'm in Christ. It's saying that I'm made in God's image, but I'm a broken sinner and I have sinful, wicked tendencies that I don't even know about. I don't even see in myself, but at the same time, I'm a saved by grace believer And the only thing good about me is that God made me and he made me new. He made me twice. And that's where my value comes from. That's, I believe, a good summary of Christian humility. It isn't a denial of value. It is a denial of the lie that your value comes from something in yourself that your sin nature tells you. It comes from God making you and it comes from God making you new in Christ. And if you have that stable perspective that I am not nothing, but I'm not all that Christ is all that. And he's in me. If you have that stable perspective of real Christian self-awareness and self-identity in Christ, then you can sweep the floor. You can wash someone's feet. I mean, metaphorically or physically, if you need to, you can do what is necessary to represent Jesus Christ who humbled himself before the father all the way to the point of the death of the cross. These are the virtues of our new life. One of the lists in the New Testament. And it's excellent for us to reinforce and reaffirm these things. But then verse three, four, we were, Haman, we were beforehand, even us, even we, Paul says, includes himself here. Even it's a double down. Even me, I'm, I was this way. We were on a pathos. They were, we were unknowing. We were un. Uh, convinced or disobedient. 
We were deceived, passive, deceived, not deceivers, but we were deceived, enslaved. We had been enslaved to lusts and adona. What's a, what's a, hey, where do we get, what, what do we get from that word? Hey, don't, What is that? Hey, Hedonism, pleasures. That's the word in Greek for pleasure. We'll get the word hedonism. It's just the Greek word, hedona, pleasures, uh, many pleasures, various pleasures in wickedness and envy or jealousy conducting ourselves. Dia, Diago, to, to, to lead your life. Stugetoi, we don't, uh, we don't see this word very often. Translated here, despicable. Could be translated loathsome. Hating, miseo, to hate, hating one another. We were beforehand, even we, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending life in wickedness and envy, despicable, hating one another. There is an echo in the Bible of, listen to me, a legitimate stoicism that says no to pleasure as the principle of life. The greatest good is not that I feel good or that, that I feel fine or that I have good pleasure. That's not what life is for. Pleasure is part of life. It is part of our walk with God, but it is not the focus. God is our focus. See what happens when pleasure becomes God? Then you don't get pleasure from your walk with God and you don't have life in its balance. Vices of the old life. What are these vices? Foolish. Anoetos. Foolish is actually unthinking. What's wrong with the churchianity in America today? I don't know about other places. I mean, American Christendom has infected Ukraine. I've been there. And a lot of the same problems we have here of how people approach the, the Christian life, they have there. Whether it's mysticism, an insane mysticism of extra biblical revelation that is not revelation, not revelation from God. Today, I think one of the greatest problems in the Bible teaching church is a tendency to overemphasize how we feel. To overemphasize the feeling side of the Christian life. And that is not to deny that joy is a feeling. That is to say that we don't lead with our feelings because if we were to lead, if we were to start with feelings, then God would have not given us a collection of statements to read and think on and reflect and emote about. He would have given us a blister pack, a set of pills that you just open your Bible for today and you pop out the pill that makes you feel good. You take it. I feel good. I'm in the Lord. I feel good. Good, good. Mm, I feel good. If that was what life was, then that's how God would have done it. He would have told you a little bit and given you a lot to feel a lot of feeling, but actually he told you a lot. He gives you a lot to think on, to think on, to think on. And then we respond with our joy with our sorrow, with our emotions. Unthinking is the word and well-translated foolish. But this is the root of a lot of our problems. We are not thinking. We are, we're, we're, we're under the water of something bad has happened. I feel bad. And we need to crawl out of that a little bit. And I think it's very instructive to, I mean, just to, just to read the Bible, think about this, you're in your crisis, you basically, to read the Bible and think about it, to reflect on what God said, you have to take your feelings about your hardship and put it to the side. I didn't say suppress it. I said, disconnect for a second and think 
about what God has said. And it's a challenge to do it, but I believe it's also a repentance. And so my feelings are important. God gave them to me. They're part of how I respond to him, but they are also easily corrupted by my sinful nature. And so these people, these Cretans are unthinking. And that's what Paul says he was. I was unthinking. And disobedient is rebelliousness. It is a saying no to God because I want to say yes to me. And there is certainly in Paul's background, a kind of a cultural chauvinism. We're the elect. We are the people of God. We're the apple of his eye. And I'm of the beloved. I'm the Hasidim. We're the Pharisees. We're the ones that that are close to God, even though they're not listening to what God has said in his word. Jesus criticized them and said that they are tithing their time, their uh, rosemary, their garden. Well, yeah, their, uh, their, their, their spices and they're denying their parents the care that they should be giving them and saying, I, I can't really take care of you because the money I would lay aside for your retirement, for taking care of you in your old age, I've committed to the Lord. But they're very careful to squint out the scale on whether they're tithing a 10% of their, of their vegetables. Paul said, Jesus says, you're, you're making man's instructions, the law and denying God's instructions. So Paul says he was this, he was disobedient, deceived. This is somebody that has been victimized very truly by God's enemy. I know there's a lot of talk about victimization and oppression and all that. The truth is that every human being to one extent or another has been deceived by God's enemy who has deceived the nations. And this is the great victimization. This is the great raping of the human race. This is the great destruction of mankind. What does Satan do with us and his deception? He says that we do not have to listen to what God has said, and we don't have to trust in God as he is. We rather are to, imp- to take a, 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 a supposed neutral position and impassively evaluate God's character on our own rational abilities. And we'll look at God's character and we'll know how to think about him from our own independent objective position. That's Genesis chapter three. We will evaluate God and we'll, and we might even get a little bit of extra information from God's enemy. That's deception. And from that independent position loaded with God's enemies lies with Satan's lies, we end up being deceived and that's the human race. And that's what Paul says he was. Hedonistic, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. The slavery (laughs) that has captivated mankind, whether in Roman slavery, whether uh, pirates from Ireland come and grab uh, Roman citizens or Roman um, subjects in uh, the mainland of England, take them as slaves, and what three or four hundreds, whether, whenever it is that there is a human physical slavery, and it has happened throughout all of world history in all civilizations because of the wickedness of men, it is nothing compared to the sinful nature and its grasp on us and our lives. And one way you see the expression of man's sin nature is that he is driven by his pleasures, and his lusts, that he just wants to satisfy himself. It is the sinful nature that has enslaved mankind. 
every one of us. And the freedom that we have, regardless of our economic status, the freedom we have in Jesus Christ is freedom from bondage, listen, to our sin nature. We don't have to serve it. I'm paraphrasing Romans 4 and 5. You don't have to serve the old master because you've died with Christ and you don't have to serve it. But Paul says before, the vices of the old life, before we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spending life in wickedness and envy. I believe this is a great summary for Paul gives of a default lifestyle of those who don't know Christ, who are walking not by the Spirit. Spending life in wickedness and envy. What is envy? Well, you know what envy is. It's a synonym of jealousy. You want something that you don't have. You want something, an experience that another has. You hate the person that has it that you don't have. They have it. You don't have it. So you hate them because they have it. I recently saw a, a video of a, of a test that was conducted, has been repeated over and over again in the animal kingdom where they're training, uh, I think it was capuchin monkeys or spider monkeys. And it's just an amazing thing. They give the monkey a, um, they make him do a task. Hand me a, 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 a disc or something. Hand me, hand me a ball, a little ball, and put it in the little hole and, and the monkey gives it and then he gets a cucumber, a piece of cucumber, and he eats the cucumber. Do you know this one? You tell him, give me, give me the ball. He, he puts the ball in a little hole from, through the cage that's set up to, to put the ball, the little, the little receptacle. And then the monkey um, gets a cucumber and he eats it. And you give it to the other monkey in the other cage and same thing. He gives you the ball and you give him a cucumber and he eats it. You do it again. He, he wants that cucumber. It's cool and it's refreshing and mostly water and all that. And then they change the, the that's the control. And then on the left side, they give one a cucumber. And on the right side, they give a monkey a grape. Now that's way better because it's sweet. And they know that monkeys can tell that. And what happens to the monkey on the left cage that got the cucumber when he sees the other one got the grape, he throws the cucumber out the hole and starts going crazy because he sees that the other guy got the grape. Now he was perfectly content with cucumber until he saw somebody else had a grape and then he lost his monkey mind. <laughs> you know, going crazy, monkey crazy on the, on the cage. Now, why is that? Didn't change his taste buds at all. He got what he was getting. It was, he was satisfied with it. Why? Because he has an old monkey nature. Because he can't deal with somebody else having something that would be better that he doesn't have. And it's a perfect picture of envy. And it's, it's sin for us. The sixth thing was a despicable and loathsome, the description that before we were despicable or loathsome. And I believe this is Paul's way of describing our sinfulness in our default setting as unbelievers. This is how God looks at sin despicable, loathsome. From his perfect righteousness, he looks at this and says, ah, it's, it's, it's grotesque. 
and he won't have anything to do with it, so he sent his son to die for our sins. And seventh, the summary of sinful human sociology. The summary of human sociology is hating one another. Now, the project of humanistic sociology or evolutionary psychology applied to groups, the project is to find out why we do these things and to fix them, to tap into our goodness as humans, because obviously we are good. I mean, it's us. Back to racism. It's me, so it's good. Humans are good, despite what we know from all of human history that we're at war with one another. The, the summary description is that we're hating one another. The humanistic, satanically deceived solution is that we're going to find programs and projects and rearrange the furniture and develop governmental structures that will legislate and govern man. They will execute legislation to where man is in harmony. But it will never, it does never work because in the human, broken, nasty, sinful heart is this tendency toward hatred. Paul's summary. So I believe this is the summary of sinful human sociology, hating one another. It is the way groups aggregate. It is the consequence of two or more sin natures rubbing up against each other. This is why marriage is so tough because you have two sinful natures sinning at each other. And I don't like this and I don't like you. And that's the, I, the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt only in sinful humans. Only because we're sinners. So that as, as I become familiar with you, I become familiar with your sin. And then that brings my reaction to seeing that sin. I get nauseated the more I can catch a whiff of what you've got going on in your sin nature. Now, I, I have olfactory fatigue. I can't smell my own. But, but you, wow, you really... You know, the more I see it, the worse it gets. And that's, that's two people trying to get through just in the flesh. And it's, it's hell. Now, some do better than others. And not all people hate each other. I'm not saying all people hate each other. I'm just saying it's an obvious tendency that we have. And it's a constant problem, for example, between parents and children. Fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, mothers and daughters. All these broken relationships. What does your Thanksgiving get together look like? Well, it's missing somebody. And I guarantee you it's missing somebody because of this problem. Right? We're all struggling. And if yours isn't, you know, people's that are. Hating one another as the default of the human race. Well, this gets us lost in verses, uh, in verse three, the summary of the human vices in our sin. And the contrast is in verses four through seven, which we'll look at in detail next hour when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared. Our father, we thank you for the clarity of scripture and the self-description you give us. Paul told us what he was like and really tells us what we're like without your work in us. Father, we have heard of uh, the old life, the vices of the old life, but we recognize that we walk according to the old manner of life, when we walk away from your word, walk contrary to your spirit, to your word, we walk in death. Father, we don't want to walk in death. I pray that you'd let us see ourselves in this description, make the self-assessment we need to make. Help us be walking in fellowship with you because the blood of Jesus, your son goes on cleansing us from all sin. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.